G'day and welcome back to the Car Expert Podcast. It's 2024. We hope you had a great Christmas and a happy New Year. Scott, James, how was your little break? It was really good for me. Did a lot of driving, including down the Great Ocean Road. Uh, you were in a Volvo, weren't you? Volvo XC60. Uh, I can't actually tell you much about how it handles because there are a lot of rental cars on the Great Ocean Road <laughs> this time of year. <laughs> Funny that. They're yeah. generally like big with like a big box on the back or... Yeah, caravans, thing, yeah. a lot of MGZSs with Europe car on the back oh. of them. And I tell you what, slow driver turnout, they must have some blanking software that yeah. means that people can't see it out the windscreen because they would just drive straight past them. Yeah. What about you, James? What did you get up to? I didn't actually go very far. I did a couple of beach days and hung out with friends and stuff and tried to switch off. Um, I you had, had an a MX-5, didn't you? Yeah, I did. So I basically made it through the entire break without driving it with the roof on once. That explains his hair today. Like <laughs> I was going to say the tan. But... Yeah, go with the tan. <laughs> well, uh, we've got a big show for you today. We're actually going to spend a lot of today's episode focusing on our VFAX wrap for 2023. There are some pretty impressive numbers. Uh, there's something stinky coming on a boat from China. Uh, we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about the F-150. Now, we spoke about that at the end of last year. I said it was my favourite car from 2023. Sean's um, going to eat his words. I'm going to eat my words a little bit, but we're going to get to that a bit later. Uh, let's dive straight into VFAX, guys. Uh, I mean, how else do you put it? It is the biggest year uh, VFAX ever, right? Number one of all time. Yeah, so 2023 on the back of a couple of lower years because of delays, shortages, demand dropping during COVID. Uh, finally, those cars have been delivered and it was the biggest year of new car sales in Australia. And we have a new winner, a new top of the table. So first of all, to, to give you the final number for 2023, all the votes are counted, all the cars have been delivered. Doing your best Osher uh, impression yes. here. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, text to, uh, no, new car too. Um, 1 million. 216,780 new vehicles delivered in 2023. That is a staggering number. It's huge. That is, uh, and it's a 12.5% increase year on year, which as Scott just pointed out, is probably a lot of um, late deliveries finally coming through. Uh, but yes, who was our winner? So Ford Ranger was the best-selling vehicle in the country. It's the first time the Hilux has been toppled in quite a while, and it's the first time Ford has been on top of the new car sales charts for its individual vehicle. Since the days of the Falcon, I think it was mid-1990s. So, the L Falcon, was it? Yeah. Uh, it would have been, yeah, yeah. pre-AU days. It's, uh, it's a huge deal for Ford, um, and it's something that has been recognised by Ford's global boss already. That Ranger has a lot of Australian input into it, and the new model, Ford has put a lot of money into getting into the country, including renting its own boat from Thailand. Yes, Ford McRanger face. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a reflection of, for one, how good that Ranger is, but also the focus Ford has put on it. I'm sort of hoping this year is the year the Ranger stays strong, but the rest of the Ford range gets that same level of attention to bring them up as well. Mm. So uh, I guess Toyota are going to change their unbreakable byline to mostly unbreakable. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> but that said, Toyota did still win the overall vehicle sales for the year with 215,240 vehicles delivered. So it's, I guess they can still claim a win. So James, tell us a little bit about what, uh, where Toyota sort of made up the numbers there. Um, well, whether they made up the numbers or not is another thing. They're still down 6% on um, last year, so they're losing a little bit of market share. They're not quite at the 20% market share that they're normally at, um, but they were still well ahead of um, the rest of the pack. Mazda was not even half of their volume with a hunt, just over 100,000 units, and then Ford did 87 overall. So I think with Toyota, they're still going through a lot of back orders. Um, they've got heaps of hybrids 
that they haven't been able to deliver. Um, their bosses have been talking about how this year their supply will improve, so they've managed to secure more allocation or orders dropping off because people can't be bothered waiting anymore, I don't know. But um, yeah, they're still well ahead, but they're not quite as strong as they have been in recent years. So. I think this year is going to be a massive one for Toyota. I know that we will get to the fact that we expect numbers to drop slightly this year, but Toyota has come out and been really bold and said that it's expecting by the middle of this year to have RAV4 wait times cut in half, down to around six months. Uh, we've got a new Prado coming, but the old Prado was still the best-selling car in its segment, which is remarkable. The four-cylinder Land Cruiser 70 is going to roll out. They're going to have a new Camry arriving late in the year. For all of the talk about the market dropping off a little bit. Toyota has so much new product or supply of existing product it hasn't had previously. It wouldn't surprise me if this time next year we're sitting here and it's back with more than 20% market share as it's able to fill the gaps that it's sort of left for itself, basically. All right, well, let's dive in. Let's talk about uh, who were the overall winners. So we know uh, Toyota overall won uh, and Ford took the most single vehicle sales, yep. but who else was right up the top of the charts there? So. I think the interesting sort of cars in the segment are... Sorry, if gonna, you're watching, uh, we've got a lot of, yeah, a lot of here, paperwork Because there's here. a lot of numbers to go through here. So, I mean, the interesting facts uh, before we jump into that are that the top three selling cars in Australia were utes. Uh, the top five cars were utes and SUVs. In fact, there's not a passenger car until number 11 on the list. Um, so I think SUVs actually cleaned up the sales. So 600 and, or nearly 680,000 new car sales were SUVs. Yes. Which so is a staggering number. A in massive itself. number and something that we've been seeing for a number of years is just continuing. Uh, Ranger was followed by Hilux and then Isuzu D-Max. That is a massive effort from a company that has two cars, <laughs> Isuzu. Uh, so well done to them. RAV4 in fourth and the MG ZS in fifth, followed by the Tesla Model Y in sixth. Mitsubishi Outlander 7th, CX-5, Hyundai Tucson, and Toyota Prado. Tesla Model Y for me is a really interesting one. Electric car sales jumped 161.1% last year compared to 2022. Now, that's a lot. it's off a low base, yeah. so it is worth mentioning that obviously that number looks massive because it was very small to start with, but there was only 11,000 more hybrids sold last year than there were electric cars. Tesla made up a massive chunk of that. The Model Y was 28, almost 29,000, and the Model 3 was on about 17,000 cars. So just shy of half of those cars were Teslas. But we've seen big demand in the electric car market relative to what has happened previously. Now the challenge is obviously, will it keep growing at that rate, or is it going to plateau a little bit? And so James, who, uh, you're covering, the, the, I guess, the more passenger vehicle side of it today for us. Um, who were the big winners there? Who were the notable names? Yeah, so there was a few standout um, performers in various segments, both across passenger and SUV. I'll cover off the passenger stuff, and Scott can go into the SUVs after me. Um, but the Kia Picanto, as, as we found recently, it doesn't really have any competition. Um, it, cleans up fleets and entry-level car market as well. Um, it sold over 7,700 units and its nearest competitor was the Fiat 500 with 700. So <laughs> <laughs> you can sort of see where, where Kia really has a stronghold on that and you can see why that car giving it an update where a lot of other brands are moving away from these segments, why it's so important because that's a lot of volume. Um, similar story for the MG3, uh, which managed 15,430 sales and its next closest competitor was the Suzuki Swift for 6,900. So it's another case of just running away with a very strong value proposition and good volume and clearly there's a market there for entry-level car market fleets and that kind of thing because you see heaps of mg3s on you know europe car lots and that kind I of think thing both of those cars are proof that even though the world is moving to more expensive cars with more features more safety tech more mandatory rules around them from end cap bodies and that sort of thing 
people want cheap transport. We see a lot of P plates on those cars. Absolutely, fair, so. rental fleets, P plates, yeah, people car. who sort of don't want to catch the train but can barely afford a new car. Yeah. Those are both cars that cater to those people and they show that not everyone needs the latest, greatest, biggest, flashiest car. Yeah, and to sort of pivot back to the top 10 models, you look at like what the average transaction price of those top 10 models are and other than the MG ZS, you're probably looking at an average transaction price between forty dollars and $60,000. But at least you, when you go back into the more granular bits and different segments, you can see that there's still a lot of market there. Um, probably the other standout performer in the passenger segment was the Tesla Model 3 with 17,300 units, as Scott mentioned earlier, well ahead of basically every other passenger car um, in that sort of arena other than the Toyota Camry which is on, still on 10,500 which is still well behind um, so I guess with Tesla sort of bucking a trend there in that you know where sedans are sort of really slowing other than Camry with fleets um, they've, they've really cleaned that up there and sort of revitalized that set part of the market. Can we officially say that the Model 3 is the new Camry? Well, if you look at an Uber fleet, it definitely is, isn't it? Maybe it's a new Commodore. Oh, <laughs> James, there are people with pitchforks coming after you right now. I look forward to the Tesla versus BYD Grand Prix at Bathurst. <laughs> um, all right, Scott, what about SUVs? What, uh, what, took the, what, what were the big ones there? So the three sort of dominant cars in their segments were the Mazda CX-3. Uh, it's getting old now. It's a Mazda 2 underneath, but it outsold the Kia Stonic comfortably. 15,700 sales to just 7,000 sales. Um, it's amazing how Mazda continues to keep its cars fresh. Um, rather than sort of a four-year model life and then getting rid of them, it gives them constant incremental updates. And in the case of the CX-3, that's really worked. The Tesla Model Y, as we've already mentioned, outsold its nearest competitor by 22,000 cars in its segment. So it's Model Y followed by Lexus NX and Audi Q5. Interesting there as well, the NX outselling the Q5, BMW X3 and GLC. That's a big deal for Lexus and is going to be key if they're going to keep growing. The last one is the Ford Ranger, which is not an SUV, I realise, uh, but is a 4x4 ute. We know that it won the overall sales charts, but it's a really interesting sales split between 4x4 and 4x2 utes. A lot of the Hiluxes that are sold are cheaper 4x2 models that go to mining fleets, traffic fleets, that sort of thing. They're obviously still cars, but they have a lower transaction price and less profit in them. The Ranger with 58,200 deliveries in the 4x4 segment outsold the Hilux by around 10,000 cars. And those 4x4 models are the ones with more leather, more equipment inside them, but also more profit for Ford. So not only is it doing good things on the sales charts, the ones that Ford are selling are the ones that go to private buyers and make them more money, which is quite an interesting comparison. Mm. I think that is a good point because Ranger, we know Ranger definitely gets most of its sales from private, whereas Toyota gets... It gets a, a larger percentage of, from, of its from, yeah. So that, I mean, good on Ford for making a product that people really, really want. Um, unfortunately, it's about the only Ford product that people really, really <laughs> yes. do want. Different, different conversation because, entirely. Yeah, because as, uh, as we can see here, uh, Everest was 15,000. So out of 87,000 odd cars that Ford delivered in 2023, only 15,000 were Everest. So that means they didn't sell many other cars. Yeah. Which they've killed yeah. half of the other yeah. range, the rest yeah. of their range anyway. The escape's gone as of the end of last year. The focus has gone as of a little while ago. What else is there? Puma. Fiesta's gone. Puma's still here, but also Mustang has been without um, production for quite a number of months in wait, waiting for the new one. So I guess they can maybe expect some extra volume there because Mustang lost its segment leadership to the Subaru BRZ, which was something that also hasn't been broken for a very long time. Uh, so, yeah, Ford hopefully will have a bit more of a well-rounded range in 2024 and maybe some extra running time with stuff like the Mach-E once people start warming up to an electric 
crossover SUV sort of thing. And they've got an electric Puma coming this year as well. So they've still got some stuff in the pipeline that hopefully can give them a boost. Mm. All right, so let's talk about the guys that didn't do quite as well. Now, well, I know on our website we have an article which are the biggest losers of 2023. <laughs> and number one is Toyota. Now, that's a very loose term of loser. I guess we talk about a loser with them, with their losing their market share and being down a number of vehicles. But um, to you guys, who else sort of lost out a little bit in 2023? So looking at the, the sort of chart of the top sellers, another big loser in the market share space is Mitsubishi. It was down 17.5% compared to 2022. I think when we're talking about losers, though, it's worth bearing in mind that these things are kind of tied to model cycles. So Mitsubishi was down significantly, but we know that the car that is often its best seller, the Triton, was in run out late last year because there's a new model coming start of this year. So Mitsubishi was down, but it's not necessarily a surprise it was down because the car it sells the most of is going away and there's a gap between the old one being shipped in full quantities and the new one arriving. Uh, also down was Mercedes-Benz, down 7.8%. It still managed to outsell BMW, um, which is quite interesting. Uh, it, it toppled BMW by just over 2,000 sales, even though BMW was very close to it for a chunk of the year. And that also, this number here, though, that you're quoting includes the commercial division. So if you take that true. out, BMW, I think, actually beat them yeah, from the a passenger, passenger car. Yeah. Which is very interesting because uh, and we've spoken about this at length in the office. Mercedes used to have a very big range of cars and they've whittled a lot of them down to one with an option pack, whereas BMW still have quite a range. So it's interesting that the perception of buyers is still that the Mercedes is the premium product and that's the car that they want to buy. I find that quite fascinating. I think Mercedes, it's moved to an agency model in the same way that Honda has. And as part of that, its prices have been fixed. There's no negotiating anymore, but also it's been hit really hard by price rises. There was a period there where Mercedes was almost competing on volume. You could get a C-Class for, at the bottom end, what you'd pay for a top end Commodore or Falcon. You get less power, but it was a Mercedes badge instead of a Holden or a Ford badge it's now realised on a global scale that that's maybe not sustainable and it's moving back towards well-specced cars at a higher price that it thinks it can make money on. And naturally that is going to cost you volume. But I do also think some of the new Mercedes products that we've driven in the last couple of years haven't really stood out like the older ones did. And luxury buyers are pretty ruthless. I mean, uh, I know my folks having recently bought a Volvo test drove a whole lot of stuff and there was no brand loyalty there. They just bought the one they thought was the best for the money they were paying. I would argue you put a GLC alongside a Q5 and an X3, I'm walking away with an X3 or a Q5 or even a Lexus NX over that GLC at the price. So part of it's the range being cut, but I think also the product hasn't been as strong recently, which is starting to show. All right, what, any other surprises that uh, really caught your eye this year? Look, hybrid cars with just under 100,000 sales, they grew about 20%, but I potentially expect them to grow a bit more. Toyota is the big driver of hybrid sales in Australia. so. Um, it having limited supply of some of its popular hybrids didn't help that. But I think this year we might see that change with more hybrid options like the Kia Sportage, Hyundai Tucson, the Hyundai i30 sedan, and better supply from Toyota. I think it's a little bit delayed relative to what we expected though, and maybe that bigger explosion in hybrid demand beyond what we've seen already didn't come last year, which to me was a shock. Any, anything from you, James? Um, well, the EV-specific model top sellers is an interesting countdown. It doesn't include cars like the MG ZS or Hyundai Kona that offer electric variants, but also come part of a, an ICE range. And looking at something like how quickly the MG4 caught on, but was still so far behind something like a BYD Addo 3. And then even just between the Kia EV6 and the Hyundai Ioniq 5, the EV6 doubled the Ioniq 5 sales, yet the Ioniq 5 seems more, much more readily available. So 
don't know whether that's down to design or pricing. Um, so I think that'll be a really interesting thing moving into the new year as well. There's been a lot of reports of Tesla demand declining. And if that happens here too, it opens up the market for other brands to sort of try and take some market share. You'll see brands like Volkswagen and Skoda come into the mix as well. Um, there are plenty of other options coming from an array of other brands. So it'll be interesting to see once that initial take up of, you know, we've had some huge volume from Tesla that's really boosted, you know, EV market share went up to over 7% last year, which is huge. Um, but, you know, moving forward, it'll be interesting to see if that sustains or whether it really tapers off. All right, predictions for 2024. I'll open to the floor. Who wants, who wants to have a crack? <laughs> I think for me, the prediction is that we're not going to see another record year. Um, everything we've been hearing from car makers for a while now is that these figures aren't reflective of current demand. They're reflective of historical demand. And that's because VFAX doesn't count sales, it counts deliveries. Um, Kia, excuse me, not Kia, Hyundai and Toyota have both told us they've got cancellation rates between around sort of 10 and 15% on their orders. And sometimes that's people have bought another car because they waited too long. Sometimes it's that they ordered a couple of different cars and they took the one that arrived first. And sometimes because their mortgage has gone up so much they can't afford that new car. But those things are likely to carry through into 2024. I don't think it's gonna be a disaster year, but I do think that this current power dynamic we have where Car makers set prices, they keep going up and dealers don't discount because supply is so poor, is going to be inverted and it's going to be a much better time to buy a car, especially through Car Expert. But that's a different part of the podcast. <laughs> what about you, James? Any bold predictions for 2024? I feel like we might see a bit of a shake-up in terms of what we see is really popular. We've had a couple of things happen recently, things like the BYD seal being... Um, launched, they've got other cars on the way. Um, we've seen fuel efficiency standards announced and various changes to LCT thresholds and what defines a fuel efficient vehicle. And I think that will sort of see a lot of announcements next year, whether the cars arrive during next year or not is another thing. But you know, we might see a change up in what people are ordering and what people are buying um, versus what they're doing now. Because you look at, you know, we're talking so much about reducing emissions and fuel consumption. Our top three <laughs> vehicles for the year were dual cab, diesel utes. And that really goes against the narrative that, you know, diesel's dead and whatever. If anything, diesel sales are still increasing off the back of these cars. So I'll be really interested to see what happens moving forward, um, whether, you know, the Ranger and the Hilux continue to dominate um, with a long lead to the middle of the pack, or whether we see some new players coming into that top 10 space and shaking it up a little bit. What about from you, Sean? Bar bold prediction, Commodore's going to make a comeback. No. <laughs> no, I, I honestly think that the Chinese market share is going to go through the roof this yeah. year. Um, the cars that they have coming, there's, I, I would, five years ago, I would never have said I'd be interested. Yeah. Um, and looking at the lineup that is, we think are going to arrive here this year, there's some really fascinating vehicles. And after driving the Seal at the end of last year, mm. I was very impressed by what they're now doing with that sort of stuff. So I think that, um, I think, China by the end of this year are going to be much higher up on that list with a, with a range of vehicles from a range of makers that you'll be hearing about very soon, yes, I'm sure. absolutely. Um, but all right, let's move on to uh, a, a different kind of popular vehicle who's suffering a little bit. The Ford F-150 uh, has finally come to Australia, but you can't get one anymore um, for now because they put a stop sale on deliveries of the remanufactured F-150. Uh, Scott, you're smiling, so I'll let you... I'll let you take it and explain a little bit about what's going on. I just here. like the way you explained it. The Ford F-150 is finally available in Australia, except it's not available in yes. 
Australia. Yes, you can go and give a dealer money, but they won't give you a car. That seems like a terrible deal it's not to a me. Great, it's not a great business model. Um, <laughs> yeah, so a fault allegedly with the remanufacturing process, which is where Ford brings the car into Australia and then RMA Automotive takes the bits off that are left-hand drive and replaces them with bits for right-hand drive because this car comes off the production line as a US model. Um, means that Ford Australia is not selling the car at the moment in Australia. We got our hands on a dealer bulletin that showed that three different cars presented with a fault with a hose on the right-hand turbocharger. Um, essentially, if the, the hose collapses, the car goes into limp mode, you get no power, you can't do anything beyond limp to a dealership or the side of the road, basically. Um, we didn't have this problem with our test car. So Paul drove one over Christmas, you guys filmed one down at Lang Lang. Um, it's not as if we saw this problem, but three in the initial batch showing this is obviously not ideal and it is enough of a concern for Ford to put the project on pause. James, you obviously worked with Ford before you worked with Car Expert. This car's a massive deal for them. They want to sort it out quickly. Yeah, it's um, that's a big blow um, to such a big project and something that you know they want to get out there as quickly as possible. They've been trying to catch up to Chevrolet and Ram for a couple of years now, and they finally had this big launch. And then to have something like this, where they actually can't sell them and they have to figure out what's wrong with it, um, is a is a pretty big problem. So I think they'll want to be sorting that out very very soon. Otherwise, they'll start falling behind. I think the other thing with these cars is Ford wants to present this as a factory F-150. So in the States, obviously, you walk into a Ford dealership and you just buy an F-150 and it's a Ford. In Australia, the Ram 1500 you buy is imported by a Tico. It's converted to right-hand or remanufactured in right-hand drive by Walkinshaw, and then it's sold through dealerships badged as Ram dealerships. And it's a similar story with the Chevrolet stuff. People are aware of that. But as long as the thing looks and feels and presents as a factory sort of product, they kind of don't care. And I think for Ford especially, which has such a reputation, built Ford tough, the F-150 is such a strong seller in the States. In an ideal world, people walk into the Ford dealership, they don't even know that it's converted to right-hand drive, it just looks like a Ranger inside the way it's built, and they drive off the lot. I think beyond the fact it can't sell them at the moment, if it can't solve this problem quickly, what it does do is draw to people's attention the fact that what we're getting in Australia is, it's not a worse product necessarily, but it's a different product to what's offered in the States because the process is different and maybe they're starting asking questions that people don't want. Sorry, they start asking questions that Ford doesn't want being asked or you know, raising doubts that Ford doesn't want being raised. So it's, uh, it's definitely a significant challenge for Ford so early in this process and one that, yeah, like James said, they need to sort out. Mm. It is interesting. Um, so, as you said, uh, RMA Automotive do the manufacturing, mm. the remanufacturing. Uh, every other big pickup in Australia, like American pickup, is being done by Walkinshaw. Uh, um, all the ones sold through factory distributors. So, Tundra is going to be Walkinshaw. Um, well, 300 of them. Uh, Chevy, <laughs> Ram. Yeah. Uh, there are all... other people who will convert your truck yeah. from left to right hand drive, but the, the ones selling at scale ones. are all uh, Walkinshaw yeah. and Clayton. No, I guess. We're not, we haven't seen those issues with Chevy and Ram, but I guess the difference is they're not a twin-turbo vehicle, um, which is, I'm surprised that they had to do that much work under the bonnet. I didn't realise yeah. they would have done that much work under the bonnet until this actually came out and we found out about this. Um, the interesting thing was when we had the, the test F-150, we did notice a couple of funny things, like the screen was sort of tilted more towards the passenger <laughs> side. Um, the 
locking mechanism, the yeah. code. They leave, they don't move that to the driver's side, that's left on the passenger side. Uh, and then there was a couple of infotainment issues we suffered with the car, but nothing like this. And I'm kind of surprised that something like this is presented so early with these cars, because there's not that many on the road yet. It's not unusual. I mean, we had a Ram 1500 for our Ute Mega Test last year, and it, um, it had some software bugs about it. The cruise control was out by 2Ks an hour. Little bits and pieces that were clearly, I say clearly, that certainly felt to me in the driver's seat like they were as a result of fiddling with bits and pieces to make it right-hand drive. Ford's not alone in that, because ultimately, although you can put the steering wheel on the other side and work really hard to remanufacture parts, if the dashboard tilts in that direction, all you can do is do your best to work around it. So Ford isn't alone on that front, but I do think if they're having issues with the process, people are gonna look with an even bigger magnifying glass at all the other little bits and pieces that aren't quite right that maybe get overlooked in a Ram or a Chevy Silverado. And uh, James, you mentioned that it's a, it's a bit of a blow to Ford. Now there's been, I guess, a few issues with the F-150 coming in. They've been delayed a couple of times. Customers have been canceling orders because they've been left in the dark. Like, overall, it's not a good look, right? No. And um, I think what I think we've spoken about this at length before, where, you know, I, I think I was pretty excited to see what Ford did with it because they're in such a unique position in that, you know, they have such a strong Ranger base who perhaps want to get something with more capability. Then Ford buyers are really loyal, you know, having worked internally at Ford Australia the way that they are so cognizant of what their dealers and what their customers want, which is why they've been so open about the development and engineering process for the F-150 locally and how intricate all of that process is. It's really surprising that something like this has happened and it could really strike them in the foot if they don't get it sorted quickly because, you know, they have, Ford has this awesome pathway that people can just, you know, there were 60 something thousand Rangers sold last year. Imagine in three or four years when they want something big or people that have previously bought Rangers, there's hundreds of thousands of Rangers on the road right now from the last few years that can just walk in and buy an F-150 tomorrow. Well, not at the moment, but you know, <laughs> in an ideal world, that's what they'd be doing. Um, so I think if they want to be making some, you know, making back on the investment, they'll want to get this sorted quickly because they're in a unique, um, a unique position where they can do quite a bit of volume, I think. And they've got a quite a competitive product and, you know, with the engine and all the tech that's in it. It's in a, you know, sort of in a unique position compared to some of its competitors. And obviously it's got the name as well. The F-150 is the, world's favourite truck and you know they're, they're very very popular they're very well renowned everywhere so um, hopefully they get this sorted soon. Do you think this puts a little bit of fear into the hearts of Toyota with their Tundra because it's also a twin turbo V6 do you think they're looking at this going should we double check it? I think Toyota is uh, going about it a very different way we know that the Tundra is in Australia I saw a couple over the break actually um, but they're only doing 300 of them to start with and they will be with customers for 12 months on a an R&D lease essentially. So the customers are in constant contact with the dealers, they're going through all the little bits and pieces. I think that's the reason Toyota is doing it that way. So there's something like this happens. It's not this product that we've said is ready for sale has broken, it's this thing where testing is broken and we'll fix it. Um, I don't think they're worried. No, I think it's a different company converting it. They're going about it a different way. Um, they're really taking their time with it as well. Yeah. They're still over a, a year away for, you know, once you get to public sale, for example. So they've got so much time to iron it out. And even like what you reported back with what they did with the 70 series four-cylinder, yeah. 
Toyota just, they cannot make those mistakes and they won't let themselves make those mistakes. So I feel like that they'll probably get it right. Even if with the added, <laughs> with the added complexity of a hybrid system, for example, imagine if the hybrid system fails in a Tundra, like what a, what a horrible PR yeah, nightmare that would be. What it says for the hybrids and everything else, so. Exactly, yeah. so I think Toyota will probably be taking notes, but I don't think they'll necessarily be worried. All right, well, fingers crossed Ford get on top of it because it, Look, overall, the F-150 is great. And your, so with, your favourite car yes, of last year. <laughs> yes, I still stand by it, to be fair, <laughs> um, even if one turbo doesn't quite work properly. But yeah, uh, we hope we see them back on the road very soon. So if you're considering buying a new car, uh, maybe not an F-150, <laughs> but if there's anything else that tickles your fancy, we, did you know we have a really, really helpful tool that can get you into a new car quicker than you might think, and maybe even for cheaper? It's very easy. You head to Google, type in Help Me Car Expert. It'll take you to our website where you can find a new car, we can connect you to a dealer, you can speak to a consultant who's based in Brisbane, so you're actually going to be talking to them in the right time zone. Mostly. Mostly, yes. <laughs> yes. After March. Yes, you have to call them after. If you're in uh, the southeastern states, call them after 10. Um, uh, and uh, we'll help you hopefully get you in the new car sooner. So head to Google, type in Help Me Car Expert. And if you do use the service, leave a comment, let us know. How was it? We'd love some feedback on it. All right, guys. Uh, this is a bit of an interesting start to the year for Kia uh, and Tesla in turn because they've had to turn a boat back to China with a number of thousands of cars on board um, but specifically for Kia there's a thousand Kias that have been sent back to China because of a stink bug infestation um, James tell us a little bit more about it Mike. Um, well it's not something that is actually quite new we've seen this a few times where a ship will dock with an infestation of insects or whatever and then quarantine basically turns them around and says you need to sort this out or they get docked for ages and the cars don't come off the ship um, it was actually something that happened to Nissan not long ago with the Qashqai it got delayed by a number of months because one port was holding these cars hostage um, so there were a thousand Kias and quite a number of Teslas that were, had come out of um, a Chinese port I assume that the Kias came off a Korean port first and then it went to China or the other way around. Um, and we can confirm that there, some of the vehicles affected included the Kia Sportage. Um, one customer that Car Expert spoke to said that their vehicle that they ordered in September 22 was on the ship. So that's a oh, long way. That's a long way. That's a long way. So it must have been a GT line diesel <laughs> or a petrol, I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's obviously something that isn't great if you're a customer waiting for a new car and if you've been waiting that long already that's not going to be something that impresses you very much but it's also not something that has just been um, restricted to Kia and Tesla. There's been a number of uh, manufacturers that have been affected by this. Um, some, car some, not cars, boats coming out of Europe and the UK were affected by this um, over a, a couple of years ago. Um, we've seen it coming out of China a couple of times in the last six months so just I guess they need to maybe put some more error guard out there or something. <laughs> Well, Australian biosecurity laws are incredibly strict. Uh, ask Johnny Depp if you really want to know about it. I'm sure he can remind you. trying to smuggle a small dog into the country this time. Um, but I guess the fear with these stink bugs is they could get into crops. Now, the interesting thing is we've seen that on this particular ship, there was, they found hundreds of them and there were still 12 alive, which is a concern because mm. they can proliferate. I guess the, the worry is, will we see this in other boats? Is this something that we think, because there's a lot of boats coming out of China with cars now, is this something that they're going to go and look closely? Could we see more delays from it's, it? It's something they're already looking closely at, and it's not necessarily just out of China, like James said. Um, I, I think one of the things that we, as an industry, have had to really think about this last couple of years is the number of steps in the process between a car being built and arriving in your driveway. And in the case of something like a Kia Sportage, that's steel and bits and pieces coming from around 
Korea, China, probably Japan, bits from Europe, they all go in there together and then they're assembled in Korea and then they're put on a boat that might not just go to Korea with a whole lot of other stuff on it. It's got to come into a port in Australia and be handled in the port and taken to a pre-delivery, then to a dealer, then to you. That's not including other stuff in between. So no matter how hard you try, there are going to be hitches in that process because there are so many steps, so many places and so many sets of hands involved. Uh, I think what we have already seen is a number of brands taking unique measures to stop this happening. So uh, BYD, for example, talked last year about driving its cars into sealed containers straight off the production line, which meant that when they arrived in the country, they were essentially closed off from any infestation and they could be taken straight to customers. Um, that's the sort of thing that I reckon we're going to be hearing more about this year because already it's a problem as wait times get longer or as you know, certain in-demand models don't break down that wait time, it's going to become more of an issue for customers like this poor person who's been waiting close to 18 months for their sportage. And, and possibly another six or so. Well, yeah, potentially. Mm. But brands can't control all the steps in between. What they can control is how the car is stored as soon as it comes off the line and that sort of thing. And I think that's what they're going to try to take control of in a bid to make life easier for themselves and for customers. Now, OK, let's put ourselves in the, the shoes of a poor bloke like this. If you're a customer that's been waiting that long for a car, uh, at this point where we're seeing you know, less of an issue with deliveries, there's a lot of stock available, do you just cut and run? Do you change your mind? Or do you think like, there's going to be people out there that are just willing to keep waiting? I think there are going to be people who are willing to keep waiting. I mean, we know through our own research and through the way people use Car Expert that choosing a new car is not a small decision. It's a massive drawn out process for people. They put a lot of time, effort, and sort of emotional energy into it. And once you've finally gone through that and decided on the car you want, I, I can imagine it's very difficult to then, after 18 months, go actually stuff what we're going to buy the one we thought was second best. So there are going to be pragmatic people out there who are less worried about the car itself. But ultimately, if you've gone through that effort, you've done your research, you've really got your heart set on something in the spec you want, I can totally understand why you'd sit around and wait. And now, James, I'm curious. We hear a lot from people that are like, they claim they've been left in the dark, they're not hearing updates on their cars, you know. Um, this customer that reached out to us, they, they sort of figured it out on their own that that's where their car was. Do you think that manufacturers or even dealers need to put in a little bit more effort to not keep customers in the dark, keep them up to date on these sort of things? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of moving parts to that. Um, using the Nissan example again, we were obviously in contact with Nissan Australia about launch timings. And as an example, things change weekly, sometimes daily. So by the time a company will communicate out to a customer that your vehicle's delayed or this is your new delivery date, it may already be different by tomorrow. Um, and this was an issue through COVID with, you know, where shipping delays and congestion at ports and everything were causing headaches across the board. And things like this only add to that. So I think, yes, obviously there can be better communication, whether you put a, a proper live tracker in a vehicle or something. I don't know whether that's a privacy issue, but, you know, things like that. But at the same time, there's only so much a local distributor of a global company can do because um, they obviously need to get communications from head office that the vehicle's then been built, put on a ship, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then it's then up to a third party. You know, think about all the times you get something through Australia Post. <laughs> How many times you get updates that it's here, now there, now it's been stopped here and whatever. Now you put that 
on a larger scale with much more money, longer distances between ports and things like that. It's just a nightmare. I can't imagine wanting to be a stock controller or anything like that. I think a lot of it does come back to the dealers because ultimately the way that it works with most brands is the dealer will then wholesale the car from the manufacturer's head office and then you know there'll be a specific car for the customer at the dealer and the dealers are also sometimes in the dark on this stuff. It's not as if they are plugged directly into head office and they know what's happening, but even if they don't, just constant communication is really, really important. If you're waiting for a sportage and it keeps getting pushed back, it shouldn't be incumbent on me to call the dealer and find out where it is. I'd really want the dealer to be giving me, you know, be it monthly or six weekly updates going, car still hasn't been built at the moment, at best estimate is this, or it's been delayed again, this is why we're very sorry just so you know that it's not been forgotten, because I think that's a big part of the frustration. And if we're talking Australia Post, one of the reasons I really get frustrated using that service is I'm okay with things being pushed back. It's the idea of it being lost, forgotten, or dismissed as a problem that is more of a worry for me. I like to know what's going on at each step in the process so that I'm aware that at least things are happening in the background and they're sort of progressing in the way they should. And I feel like that's something that some dealers are very good at. I've spoken to people who've had really good experiences with dealerships and particular salespeople. I've also spoken to people, in one case, waiting for a Kia Seltos, who've had the complete opposite and called on the day that their car was meant to be delivered only to be told, it's actually another six weeks away, really yeah. sorry. So I think across the board, it also falls to the dealers to, even if they're not telling the customers anything, just be in communication, stay in constant touch and Remind them that, yes, we know your car is coming, we know it's frustrating and we're doing what we can. All right, well, I'm going to put you guys on the spot here. Imagine you've ordered a Kia Sportage and it's now not coming. <laughs> Where would you, what would be your next choice? Scott, I'll pass to you first. Oh, question without notice. Um, if I'd ordered the diesel, which I think I would if I were buying a Sportage, I would probably look across at the Hyundai Tucson, which has recently been given an update because they are fundamentally the same That's car a, underneath. Yeah, very much a, a twin sister there, isn't it? Uh, yeah. If I'd ordered the petrol, I'd be trying my best to get my hands on a Honda CRV hybrid because it was one of my best mid-size SUVs of last year. What about you, James? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I guess it depends on when I ordered it because if I had... September 22. So yeah, yeah, by that point you didn't know that there was a hybrid yeah. coming or whatever. I guess I would probably, if I was set on that car, um, especially if it was a jungle wood green example, um, <laughs> I'd probably be trying to figure out if I can get a similar spec or whatever first and see if that changes anything and then if, the, if all goes to not the right way then I'd probably be looking into my other options like a Tucson or uh, yeah, a Tucson. Tucson. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a Mitsubishi Outlander. Fair enough, fair enough. Alright guys, well we're nearly there this week. Um, we're going to bring back our picks of the week. So James, I'll pass over to you first. What, what did you see over the holiday break that really you think everyone should see? Well, I actually did something very unusual and spent a lot of time in front of the TV watching Netflix. So for once, no, for once, <laughs> wow, jeez. Horizontal stripes too. <laughs> yeah, God, um, give me a warning first. <laughs> but um, no, I spent a lot of time watching Netflix actually, which is something I don't get a lot of time to do. And I um, went through Drive to Survive from seasons one and I've almost finished season four, ahead of season five coming very soon. After three years of working with James, we finally wore him yeah, down. Yeah, these, it. Guys, these guys have really worn me down. Down and I've never really been an F1 guy as much as everyone would think, oh, you're into cars, you must be into F1, and I've never really been into it. But after you guys picking my interest a little bit, I was like, okay, I'll go watch it and see what it's about. And I found it so fascinating what goes into that 
sport. You know, I'm a, I'm a tennis fan, so I've always understood how that works. But the scale that F1 is at, the money that you're dealing with, the various teams, and, you know, how volatile it is at any given point, and, you know, results change every week. The conditions change. Well, not in 2023, they didn't. Well, <laughs> yeah. And for, you know, seasons one to three, Hamilton pretty much won everything. But, you know, seeing how so many variables can really determine the outcome of the race and how quickly they just have to keep it moving um, and the amount of pressure that they're under, you know, understanding the prize money things, so if they're not winning points, they, you know, this might struggle with budgets for the following year. I just found it fascinating. And some of the personalities that have come out of that show as well are quite entertaining. Um, I'm a particular fan of the, the Haas team principal. He's... Um, Gunther. <laughs> yeah, he has me in stitches every time he gets on the camera. Yes, so. Do not smash his door. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Scott? What caught your eye over the break? Uh, I actually am going to follow on from James. My girlfriend's parents for Christmas gave me Gunter Steiner's book, um, which is written as sort of a blow-by-blow -blow diary throughout the 2022 season. Um, it's very light read. It's not as if he's giving away trade secrets, but it was a really entertaining window into the process, for example, when Russia invaded Ukraine um, and what they had to do getting rid of Mazepin and how that back and forth with Haas and the board went. Um, and that sort of thing. So I, I read it in an afternoon sitting on the couch. It's a very, very easy read, but it was very entertaining and one that, if you enjoyed Drive to Survive, is worth borrowing from me after Sean's done with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to stick with uh, Formula One. I know that we're a, a new car podcast, but um, I was Braun GP and I absolutely loved it. It's hosted by Keanu Reeves and it, it follows uh, Ross Braun and Jensen Button and his team in the 2009 season to go from basically Honda pulling out of Formula One and them being absolutely up the creek to, spoiler alert, winning the season, which was... I don't yeah. think you're spoiling no. anything. <laughs> if, you, if you didn't know the result, uh, too bad. But yeah, brilliant. It's a four-part doco. Absolutely brilliant. Definitely worth the watch. Uh, it's on Disney+. Plus. So yes. yeah, well worth a watch. It's good, good um, Sunday afternoon uh, viewing. Uh, guys, that pretty much wraps us up for this week. We're back for 2024. I feel like this went well. <laughs> I, I mean, we'll let the people online be the judge yes. of that, but yes, I agree. Yeah. Uh, any final tidbits you want to leave anyone with? Any advice for the, to start their new year off well? Don't, Don't go to the gym. Drive into floodwaters. Don't drive into floodwaters. Whatever you are doing. Yes. At the moment, we're sitting in Melbourne and it's tracking down with rain and there's traffic chaos near our office because someone drove under a flooded bridge and their Mercedes van conked out. If they're little floodwaters, don't drive into them. If they're big swelling floodwaters, definitely don't drive into them. If it's a, I saw a video the other day of a RAV4 with a trailer crossing a bridge that was underwater, mm. and seconds later the bridge got washed away. So it's just don't do it. Don't do it, that is stupid. Any advice from you, James? Any tips? Well, after having my ego badly bruised about five minutes ago, <laughs> I'm gonna probably hit the gym. But also, yeah, turn your lights on in the rain. Yes. Turn your lights on at night, actually, is another that's really a good very one. Handy tip that's, well. that's one that I notice quite a bit, and it's very frustrating. Daytime running, light, daytime running lights are not headlights. Um, and yeah, don't drive into floodwaters because um, yeah, the scales. Yes, well, my tip is uh, if you're listening to this podcast while you're driving, when you finish, uh, stop and leave us a review because uh, five stars would be great. I think Absolutely. five stars all around, five stars. Um, leave us a review, leave us any comments on YouTube, uh, give us any feedback, any questions, any suggestions, things you'd like to see this year because we're open to anything. Uh, we're going to try a couple of new things as the year goes on. So. Uh, thank you, everyone, for coming and joining us again this week. Thank you, Scott, and thank you, James, for sitting down. It's been a blast. I'm happy we're back. And uh, let's go drive some cars. Sounds good. We'll see you next week.